we've got lots and lots of experiences and I wanted to include that because I feel that so often non-disabled people think well I've met someone with a disability so I know all there is to know and that's just not the case. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Accessibility is often taken for granted by people who are not disabled. Everyday situations like shopping, catching public transport, accessing public bathrooms, or even using the internet can be extremely challenging for those who have a disability. Disability is so individual and so misunderstood, and our world does not do well at accepting, accommodating, and including individuals who are disabled. We need to do better. My guest today is the amazing Carly Finlay, an award-winning writer, speaker, and appearance activist. Carly is the editor of Growing Up Disabled in Australia, an anthology of stories written by disabled Australians and published this week by Black Ink Books. Carly is also the author of Say Hello, published in 2019, and she writes regularly for CNN, ABC, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and SBS, and also appears regularly on television and radio shows. Carly identifies as a proud disabled woman. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Carly. Thank you for having me, Lee. First off, Carly, I want to ask you something that everyone that comes on this podcast gets asked. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think it's about doing good for the whole community and that means including all people, being mindful of all people when you plan events and when you communicate, but also not looking for praise when you do it, like just doing it for the greater good, not for your own kind of validation. Do you see doing good as something that kind of permeates every aspect of daily life or is it something that is kind of siloed off into work or community or family? I think it's in every aspect. I mean, I think that ideally parents hopefully teach their children about diversity and acceptance and inclusion. I think like at work you do things with a purpose but also not just to tick a box but because you truly believe in something. And I think in community I mean, we've seen this with COVID, haven't we, where people have been foregoing, you know, their everyday freedoms so that we can all be safer in the long run. And, you know, we encourage someone to wear a mask because someone else might not be able to or someone might be more at risk of COVID than you. So you have to take all the precautions you can. Yeah, absolutely. A new book that you edited called Growing Up Disabled in Australia was released this week. Can you talk about what it means to have this book published. Yeah, it's amazing. I think that it's a history-making book. This is the first of its kind. It's part of the Black Ink series, the Black Ink Growing Up series. So Black Ink has released Growing Up Asian in Australia, Growing Up Queer in Australia, Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, Growing Up African in Australia, and now Growing Up Disabled in Australia. And soon there'll be Growing Up in country Australia. So the series are very popular, particularly in schools. And this particular book is the first of its kind because there hasn't been an Australian anthology of stories by disabled people. And the other thing is that so often 
non-disabled people are telling our stories, are censored in the stories um, in the media or in literature. And this book is amazing because it is only disabled people telling our stories. So the idea about nothing about us without us is really ringing true, that we are in control of our own stories, that we're telling them from first-person perspective and that non-disabled readers and disabled readers are going to get the sense of disability not being homogenous. So there's so many different experiences of disability in the book. That's one thing I was reading in the foreword where you talk about taking an intersectional approach to selecting authors that were featured in the book. What did that process look like for you? Yeah, it was a huge process. We had over 360 applications or submissions for the book. So there was a definite hunger from people to share their story. From those, I made a long list of people whose work I really liked. And then I looked at it and I didn't want too many of the same type of impairment, you know, type of diagnosis. I wanted difference there. And I also wanted to make sure that we had more than just white men in wheelchairs because I feel like in Australia and around the world, the default when talking about disability is often white people in wheelchairs, so Paralympians mostly. And so I wanted to show that disability is more than that because when I grew up, I didn't see myself as disabled because all I saw was Paralympians or a really poorly cast person on 60 Minutes talking about the pitiful side of disability. And so it was very important to me to make sure that we had lots of women, we had non-binary and transgender people, we had people that are queer and gay, we had people who are Aboriginal, people whose first language is not English, we've got people who are parents, people who don't identify as disabled even but fall under the disability umbrella. So we've got lots and lots of experiences and I wanted to include that because I feel that so often non-disabled people think, well, I've met someone with a disability so I know all there is to know. And that's just not the case. Yeah, I think certainly for me reading it, that really came through is that disability is not homogenous, as you say. There's a breadth of people and experiences that I think it's very easy to not consider because of what that traditional idea of disability looks like and how it's been put in our faces our whole lives. And also not considering like the access needs of of somebody, I mean, my access needs are very different to somebody who is in a wheelchair or someone who is blind or someone who's deaf. But I think to consider just because someone is in a wheelchair doesn't mean that they can't walk occasionally or even that if someone has a minor impairment, it doesn't take away the validity of a disability, you know? Yeah, and I think that's we're so quick to make something finite. So if you're in a wheelchair, you're you must not be able to walk. Yeah. And even like, I think the idea of blindness, there's a couple of stories about blindness in the book and each of them are different. Each of them do talk about levels of sight that they have. So I think that's a really important thing as well. And so it was important to me to get a number of experiences and and cross sections. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I want to talk about accessibility. We had a brief chat earlier this week about the book launch and the book promotion trail. 
And you mentioned some of the challenges you're experiencing in negotiating with venues for launch events. And it seems to me that there's kind of an element of good washing, I guess, here. Venues wanting to be seen as progressive and accessible, but unwilling to really do the hard work that comes with truly being accessible. You know, what it comes down to is changing the systems and structures. Otherwise, it's just tokenism. And Absolutely. I released my first book, Say Hello, exactly two years ago. So it was around this time that I was doing all the media and events. And one of the things that I found really hard was I had to talk about the book, but I also had to work with booksellers, the publisher to an extent, and also venues to talk about accessibility. And it's really hard because you want to be polite and come across as easy to work with. But when you're trying to negotiate accessibility and you have to say to someone, well, no, that venue won't work for people because there's no wheelchair accessible toilet or that venue won't work for me because it's outside, you have to put on an assertive voice there. And that can be really tricky because people just think you're difficult. And so one of the things that I did to start with the pitching process for Growing Up Disabled was talk to the publisher, Black Ink, about some of the things that I encountered with Say Hello and that, you know, I wanted to avoid those things. And also I worked on a media plan for both the contributors and media who are interviewing me. You may have received a media guide from the publisher and I talked about how I would like the people that are reviewing the book, people who are interviewing contributors and me to talk to us because so often the media gets it wrong. And so the other thing that I did was work with the contributors or work for the contributors in developing a guide so they know how to work in the media and talk about their access needs. So it can be really hard because I've had people, organisations come back to me to tell me that they just don't have resources for, you know, accessibility or that they don't have the time. And I think when promoting a book like this, you have to do everything you can to make it accessible. The people that are promoting them, the organisations need to provide a transcript for podcasts and provide accessible venues so that the very audience and the very writers that they're supporting can be involved. Absolutely. Because otherwise it's just tokenism, right? It's just surface level. Here we are, we're hosting the launch of this book about disability in Australia, yet actually we are not really accommodating those needs. I can definitely say that the people who are hosting the the events are great and they've been really great to work with, but, you know, the occasional publication is is tricky. I work at Melbourne Fringe, which is an arts festival in Melbourne, and we have our own venue. And the launch for the contributors, there'll be a number of events, and the launch for the contributors will be at our venue, which is both accessible for audiences and contributors to sit on the stage because there's a Moby lift for the stage, there's accessible toilets, there's an accessible green room. So it's quite hard to find a venue that is accessible for both performer and audience, but lucky we've got that for work. So yeah, it can be hard. I mean, I've definitely seen an improvement in the two years since I promoted my last book. Yeah. Kali, as I was reading the book, I noticed you talking in the foreword and and some of the contributors as well, talking about the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. And I wondered if you could break down what it means to operate within each of those models. Yes. So the medical model of disability is often used by medical 
practitioners, medical industry, perhaps even the Department of Social Services and and NDIS, looking at disability as a problem of the body. So, for example, if you get assessed for the NDIS or to receive the disability pension, it often looks at what your body can't do, but it doesn't look at the barriers that are created by society. And the barriers that are created by society come under the social model of disability. The social model of disability says that there are barriers put up by society and by dismantling the barriers that can help disabled people live a full an active life. One of the authors, Al Gibbs, I think it was, talked about how life-changing discovering the social model of disability was for her having existed within the medical model for a really big chunk of her life. Do you think that's a common story amongst people? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I get a lot of questions from people who have the same skin condition as me or different types of disabilities saying that they don't really feel disabled because their body works or their body doesn't work in the way that they want. And I'll say to them, hey, have a look at the social model of disability where it talks about the barriers that society creates, you know, like physical and also attitudinal and systemic. And then they sort of change their view around disability that they realise that it's not a bad thing. It's not as negative as they thought. I definitely grew up thinking that I wasn't disabled even though I had a skin condition which was really severe and limiting in a lot of ways for my whole life. And it wasn't until I met other people with other types of disabilities. So I mentored at a hospital program for young people between 12 and 25, and they all had different types of impairments to me. They had things like severe asthma, epilepsy, arthritis, lots of different types of things. And we had very different diagnoses, but the experiences that we had were very similar. We both took a lot of time off school. We both had a lot of time in hospital waiting rooms, in the hospital you know, clinics with different specialists. We all had people coming up to us asking inappropriate questions. And so it wasn't until I met those types of people and I realised that we had this real shared experience of systemic barriers that I could call myself disabled. And I didn't know what the social model was then. It was only when I then studied my master's and I quoted a person who's written a lot on disability, Jenny Morris, who wrote Pride Against Prejudice. And that was when I sort of realised the, the social model and also talking with Stella Young. Would it be correct to say that the medical model is the prevalent model? Perhaps within the disability sector, but certainly not within the disability communities with, with disabled people ourselves. And so in your mind, what do we need to do to make sure that the social model is the one that is adhered to, I guess. I think we have to really listen to and centre disabled people's voices. I mean, an example of this is just the language that disabled people use for ourselves. So lots of media organisations, government schools will use terms like people with disability because that is the way that seen as politically correct. Schools often use the term special needs because I feel like they soften that for parents. They think that disability is such a negative term. But 
I feel like we have the right to identify in how we want. And so I talk about disability being a part of identity. Um, I say disabled person, disabled people. I call myself a disabled person. And that is because I see it as part of my identity. I can't leave this part of my identity at the door when I go to work. When you use a term like people with disability, it implies that you carry the disability with you and you can put it down and leave it as part of your identity. But for an Aboriginal person, you don't say person with Aboriginality. You don't say person with blackness. You don't say person with womanhood. So why is it that disability is seen as such a negative term that it's a term that you have to easily be able to reject? Sometimes when I talk about disabled people, non-disabled people will correct me in how I talk about it because they're not comfortable with the term. That reminds me of another another piece in the book. I think it's uh, Chantelle. I can't remember her surname. And she talks about this idea of people seeing her disability as a burden and her taking that on as well and carrying that with her. Yeah, I feel like disability is often seen as a burden, especially in the parent space of parents of children with disability. I really worry that parents take up so much space in talking about disability as a burden. I see parents that do media who are very well-intentioned, but they will say, you know, oh, I love my child so much. And even when they say that, if they say having a disabled child is a worse fate than death or, you know, I wish my disabled child had cancer, which are things that parents have said, that stuff is obviously headlined as opposed to the, oh, my God, my child's amazing and if only the social barriers could be removed. And I feel like parents going to the media talking about their child's disability as their identity, but very rarely do they listen to actually disabled adults. Their child is going to be a disabled adult one day and they push the disabled community out because they they don't like the term. They reject the term disabled. They don't want to see disability as an identity. It can be very alienating. I'd be really interested on your thoughts on something that that I've been thinking about recently coming from a child protection background. And what made me think of it was you talking about the disabled child becoming the disabled adult and parents talking about it in media and taking their children on television and writing books and doing all sorts of things. We often in child protection and safeguarding talk about the right of the child to have a say in whether their story is shared or not. And I I wonder what your thoughts are on that and consent around that and what happens when you do become that adult and there are all these media stories out there about you. Yeah, I've got so many thoughts on that. <laughs> I, I feel like we haven't seen enough children grow up in that limelight to have a say yet. I certainly feel that in the last few years, it's, there's been a, a little bit of a shift maybe. I've had lots of parents initially be very aggressive or reluctant to engage with me because I am very hardline on how much people overshare. And they'll come and say to me, oh, you know, initially I was really angry at what you wrote, but I thought about it. And, you know, no, I wouldn't want a video of myself having a tantrum or I wouldn't want my innermost private moment shared 
for everybody to see. I feel like also there's that excuse of raising awareness. So for people with skin conditions, I feel like there's a lot of private moments that we have that the outside world doesn't see. You know, no one sees just how much skin I shed. No one sees the pile of skin near my bed, you know. I have a choice about whether to showcase that for the world, and I don't. But then I see parents of children with ichthyosis take photos of their children's skin pile that's been left on the couch or the floor. They'll show the child's process of exfoliation in the bath. Now, I would ask the parent, uh, would you like this being done to you? Do you want to be filmed on the toilet? And I know this is a really crass example, but would you like a video of your tampon being removed? Because essentially these things that the parent is sharing of this child are really intimate and not in a sexual way. This is the thing. When I talk about intimate moments, the parent automatically goes to thinking about sexual, but these intimate private moments that often we don't want the outside world to see. And that can be really hard. It can be really hard to kind of keep that relationship as a disabled adult going with that child in some way, but also really saying to the parent, hey, you're oversharing a lot. Yeah. And I mean, this is a thing that transcends disability as well. It's the fact that once something like that, an intimate moment like that is on the internet about a child, you lose control. Yeah. And I think that last year or the year before, there was a case of this woman who was really harassing a young baby with ichthyosis, a young child, and also an adult. And while I felt terrible that this has happened, I also thought, well, that might not have happened if the mother hadn't been so quick to raise awareness by putting their child on the internet in such vulnerable positions. Absolutely, you know, don't hide your child away and normalise this difference, but think about how much you would share of yourself in that situation. And think about how your child is going to feel as an adult, knowing that these videos and this story is out there about them and that they didn't have a say in that. Absolutely. I do a little ichthyosis awareness posting every year, which was actually quite big. It was like one or two stories every day for May. And um, I've had some people message me a few years later to say, hey, Carly, can you take my piece off the internet? I'm not comfortable with it being up now. I'm like, yep, that's fine. Yep, no worries. And, you know, that's that kind of idea of timed consent. You may say yes in the moment, but, you know, a year later, you feel really uncomfortable about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about something I've seen you touch on in your social media, and it's to do with the importance of achievement in the disability community. And you've talked about a feeling or an attitude perhaps within the community that individual people shouldn't have success or profile and that it should always be a a kind of a collective approach to awareness. What's your experience with this? Yeah, as I have experienced or done more in my life and, and more in my career, I get more scrutiny, more criticism, more online bullying from various parts of the community, including the disability community. And I feel like sometimes there's an attitude that we aren't allowed to accept individual awards or we aren't allowed to have individual success. It sort of must be for the whole community. But often when you're doing this individual work, it is for the greater good and it is for the greater community. Why do you think this occurs? What do you think is happening? I think maybe it is the, you know, shortage thing, the the scarcity idea where 
people think that there's not enough opportunities for them or not enough, you know, someone's taking up too much space. I always try and amplify other people. So hopefully in this podcast I'll get the chance to mention a bunch of people that people should follow, but I always try and do that. And I feel that some people think that, well, if one person's had that opportunity, there's not going to be enough for other people. And I think that's true to an extent, but I also feel like one person's success is making space for another person's success. And for growing up disabled, for example, this has helped 46 contributors be published. Some haven't been published before. Of course, some have got books out. Anna Waitley and um, Fiona Murphy. Anna's got a book out and Fiona's got one coming. Gail Kennedy's obviously been published, but so many other people haven't you know, had a chance and this gives them that chance. Some disabled people think that there's a finite amount that people could achieve or amount of of opportunities and that we're taking up space. But I would like to think that we're making space. Do you think there's something in there also about, well, perhaps my particular disability is not being profiled? Yeah, I definitely do. A lot of the people who have been asking me questions about the book's release, you know, have asked, oh, is neurodiversity there? You know, have you included deafness and hard of hearing people? Because I feel like they are probably used to not seeing their disability represented. What change would you like to see result from the publication of Growing Up Disabled in Australia? A few things. I would love that the contributors have opportunities, so paid opportunities to speak and to possibly get book deals with other places. We would like to see a better understanding of the social model of disability. I also feel like the readers, particularly disabled readers, feel like they're more comfortable in telling their stories by reading these stories. Carly, what do you find the most rewarding about your work? And also, what do you find most challenging? Most rewarding is when people stop me in the street and say, hey, Carly, you know, your work has helped me. You know, when a mother of a child has sort of changed their perspective on the oversharing thing or on seeing disability as identity, that's really great. When a person with a skin condition or disability writes to me and says I've helped them in some way, even if it's just meaning that they're being more honest with themselves about being disabled or needing to talk about their access needs. And what about most challenging? What's the hardest thing? I think it is that idea of, you know, the the jealousy and the idea that we shouldn't have individual success and the online abuse stuff. I think that's pretty hard. And I think also the expectation to just be on all the time, like people messaging, asking me if I can solve something, tagging me, enables content, expecting me to, you know. To be that voice. Who is or has been your greatest influence in the work you do? I really, really like the work of Alice Wong, who is an American woman, and she just does so much for the disability community and curating news, providing opportunities in her podcasts and books. And she's just done an anthology in America called the Disability Visibility Project, which is incredible. I really like her. I think Melissa Blake's amazing talking about selfies and facial difference. A man called James Partridge who died last year, he had a facial difference. He acquired it at the age of 19 when he was in a car accident and he wrote a lot about facial difference 
in the media. He petitioned, campaigned a lot. He started an organisation in England called Changing Faces and then Face Equality International, which sets the standard of media reporting on facial difference. He just did so much work in bringing people with facial differences into the mainstream. And also my parents were pretty amazing in teaching me values and in changing the way I saw myself. But in ter- yeah, in terms of disability rights, definitely Stella Young, her work is great. Jenny Morris, as I mentioned before, she wrote this incredible book called Pride Against Prejudice. And it was around finding pride even when the world tells you you shouldn't be proud of your appearance or your disability. My next question is a bit of a philosophical question, and it comes from a, a philosopher called Kwame Apaya, and it asks what you think the greatest social challenge of our time is, something that future generations would look back on and think, what on earth we were thinking? Yeah, I think it's probably not not doing things, not building spaces or running events with accessibility at the forefront and so it's very hard to retrospectively fit something with you know accessible features why not build that from the start and also the expectation that disabled people constantly have to ask that their access needs will be met instead of their access needs being just met without someone having to ask I think that there's a merit in doing it that way. Yeah, it's so true. Carly, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? That disabilities are not absolutely homogenous and that everyone's got a story to tell. And also that just because you have met somebody with a disability doesn't mean that you know everything about them. Yeah. Where's your favourite place on earth? Gosh, um, it was funny because I thought during lockdown in Melbourne, I realised that I didn't have to go very far from my suburb to access everything I need. And even after we were able to do a little bit more in November, I was planning my birthday in December and I just didn't want to go anywhere beyond my suburb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it has been a bit like that. It's interesting when you're restricted, you actually find the enjoyment in the place you're constantly leaving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that that definitely made me think that I just, I quite like where I live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same. What book are you reading at the moment? I've got a few books on the go. Um, the one that I'm really enjoying, and I've only got about 30 more minutes to listen, so I'm really excited to finish it, is called People Like Her by Ellery Lloyd. And I don't know whether it's out in Australia at the moment, but I just got it on UK Audible. And it's about social media and blogging and the real dark side. And it's quite a thriller and I'm really enjoying it. I really relate to some of the oversharing stuff around the parents and the trolling that she gets. I have definitely related to that. So it's quite a good book. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Excellent. And what about podcasts? Do you listen? I do listen to podcasts, although I think that they've really lessened as last year I was more focused on books. The last podcast I listened to was, oh, now I can't remember, but I do really like conversations. Like I like the conversations with Richard Feidler and Sarah Konofsky and I like those sorts of ones a lot. Wonderful. And Carly, where can people access your work and find the book? So I have got a blog, carlyfinlay.com.au. I also have a Facebook page, which is Carly Finlay OAM. And my Instagram and Twitter is at Carly Finlay. So C-A-R-L-Y 
F-I-N-D-L-A-Y. And you can find the book at any good bookstore, like independent bookstores are really important to buy from at the moment. Just search for Growing Up Disabled in Australia and you'll find it online. It is in paperback and ebook at the moment and will be in audiobook very, very soon. So keep an eye out through Black Ink Books and my own social media. About that, I recorded the audiobook. So that was a good experience. Yeah. Carly, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast. I have learned so much and I can't wait to see this book get out into the world. Thank you. Me too. I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Thank you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of the Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.